Welcome back to New Books and Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today we are talking to Rachel O'Neill about her new book, Seduction, Men, Masculinity, and Mediated Intimacy. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Can you first start us off by telling us about yourself? So I am a sociologist, and I am currently a fellow in media and communications at LSE, the London School of Economics and Political Science in the UK. And my background is quite interdisciplinary. So having been trained in sociology, I've also have training in psychology and politics and have more recently focused in gender and cultural studies. And most of my research explores the relationship between culture and subjectivity. So I'm particularly interested in, in the kind of ways of being in the world um, that, we, that we come to at, at a given historical moment. And much of my research is looking at particular cultural formations, which seem to offer their participants alternative ways of living or or better ways of living, but in the process tend to reinforce received hierarchies of gender, of sexuality, of race and class. Mm -hmm. How did this book come about for you? So the research first took shape as a PhD project. So I wrote my PhD thesis on on the seduction industry. Um, And I was really interested in how it was that the seduction industry had had taken shape and why it was that it was so compelling to those who were involved in it. So to give a bit of background, the seduction industry is essentially organized organized around the belief that the ability to meet and to attract women is a skill that heterosexual men can cultivate and that they can do this through various forms of practical training and, and personal development. And so the seduction industry produces a wide range of media. So there are autobiographical books and diary-style blogs. There are channels on YouTube as well as on other websites. So there's a whole kind of range of media that the industry produces. And alongside this, as a kind of core vertical within the industry, are are live training events where men will go and they'll be taught various ways of of interacting with women. They'll be uh, given an understanding of uh, female psychology and, and social dynamics, these kinds of things. Uh, And I was interested in in why it was that this system of expertise that's produced within the seduction industry is so compelling to men. So why would men take such an interest in these kinds of training products and services? Why would they pay to attend these courses? What is it that they hope to to realize or to achieve? What was driving them? That was really the question that uh, started this whole research and that's grounded the project. Yeah. So what how did you achieve that? What were your methods? So this is an ethnographic project. Uh, So I was doing a whole combination of things uh, in relation to that. So as well as doing participant observation and actually going to events and and sitting in on training sessions and and shadowing trainers as they were working with clients on a one-to-one basis, I was also, as I've said, looking at the media that the industry produces. And crucially, I was also interviewing those who participate in this sphere. So I did interviews uh, with just over 30, 30 people. Um, so mostly men, a few women, a very small number of women who participate in the industry. And those were quite in-depth, detailed interviews. And, and in some cases, I met with men a second or third time. I kept in touch with many of my participants over a longer period by email, uh, keeping touching base every once in a while, things that were going on for them in their lives, things that had changed or shifted. Um, quite a few people sent me resources that they wanted me to look at. So they themselves would recommend to me seduction guidebooks or videos to look at or discussion threads, online forums. 
Um, so those are the main the main methods. Mm-hmm. Great. So in the introduction, you bring up the idea of mediated intimacy. So I was hoping you could explain what that is and sort of set the stage for the rest of your study. Mm-hmm. So the term mediated intimacy is one that I, I borrow and adapt from the cultural studies scholar Rosalind Gill, uh, who has also developed it subsequently with Meg John Barker and Laura Harvey in a, in a book that's just come out this year. And in Ros Gill's original formulation, she's interested in sex and relationship advice that's uh, given through the media. So that could be in the form of women's magazines or um, different kinds of guidebooks. So the kind of archetypical men are from Mars, women are from Venus, Um, but also more generally in how ideas about sex and relationships circulate in and through the media. So I I was interested in using this concept of mediated intimacy as a way of approaching the seduction community, because in formulations elsewhere, there's a tendency to look at the industry as a subculture. Um, Mm -hmm. And I felt that this was some, the the idea of a subculture, I mean, the industry definitely has some of those trappings. It has a kind of sense of secrecy and there's a lot of, um, there's kind of a a vernacular that goes along with the industry. Um, But the language of subculture implies that it's something that's quite bounded and discreet. Whereas what I was seeing was that the, the boundaries of the seduction industry are quite permeable. They're quite diffuse. So it's very often the case that ideas and techniques and concepts developed in this sphere spill out into what we would consider the mainstream and vice versa. So I wanted to push against the idea of the seduction industry as a subculture. Um, And I also wanted to, although it it, it definitely has aspects of self-help to it, I wanted to focus in specifically on the fact that the form of self-help that's offered in this setting is specifically gendered and sexual. So it's, it's not kind of any self-help. It's, it's specifically about masculinity and, and heterosexuality. So the concept mm-hmm. of mediated intimacy then for me was a way of drawing attention to those aspects of the industry uh, rather than kind of going along with some more conventional framing of, of a subculture or self-help movement. So in the first chapter, you also bring up what you call sexual ethic. And I was hoping you could explain what that is and also tie that into some of the anxiety that you witnessed among your respondents? Yes. So in chapter one, I talk about the idea of cultivating a sexual work ethic. So this is something that many of the men that I spoke to, when I asked them how they felt when they first discovered seduction as a system of expertise, as a a set of knowledge practices, they tended to describe feelings of relief and reassurance. So it was really profound for them to discover that there was this system of expertise that they could draw on. Um, that being good with women wasn't something that's simply a matter of kind of luck or inheritance that, that some men have it and some men don't. Um, so the idea that there is a system of expertise that you could, you could learn and apply was really, really profound for many men. And as a result of that, there was an idea that in order to, to achieve this, um, to usefully apply the system of expertise, you needed to really work on the sexual self, work on the intimate self, and make yourself attracted to, attractive to women, uh, gain the kind of the skills and the confidence needed to interact with women. And so the men I was speaking to really approached sex, intimacy, dating, and relationships almost as you would another sphere, say, I mean, the common parallels were drawn to education and employment. So men would mm-hmm. say, well, if I wanted to you know, do well in school or do well in university or get a good job, I would, I would apply myself. I would, I would work at it. I would study. I would practice. I would rehearse. And so they took the same kind of an approach 
to, to sex and intimacy in the context of the seduction industry. And that's essentially what, what trainers were, were telling them, that if you apply yourself, if you invest the requisite time and energy and also money, you'll be able to realize this skill set and you'll be able to become successful with women, whatever that might mean to an individual man. Yeah, so this ties into another concept that you bring up later in the chapter, which is branding the sexual self. And I was Mm -hmm. hoping you could explain what that means and also in terms of the trainers, how they brand themselves. Absolutely. So there's an idea within the seduction industry at large that, you know, you kind of uh, approach dating and relationships as though you were kind of selling, selling a product, you're, you're selling yourself. Um, so kind of branding yourself is, is something that kind of you see throughout the industry as a whole, but it really takes its most definite form among seduction trainers. So there's no prerequisite to becoming a trainer in this industry. There's no uh, kind of accreditation that you can take or, or, you know, there's no kind of official way of, of proving your legitimacy. So what trainers would do and what they would really insist upon when I I asked them about it was that in order to be a trainer in the industry and to have legitimacy and expertise, you have to have done it. You have to have gone out yourself and learned these skills and transformed oneself and become successful with women. And in so doing, they then had to essentially make a business model out of their own intimate lives. Mm -hmm. So They had to be able to prove to their potential customer base, their potential client base, that they were themselves sexually successful. And that meant essentially opening out their intimate lives to public scrutiny. So that might take shape in a a number of different ways. So it could be, for example, putting photographs or videos of yourself interacting with women or even with girlfriends online, making those that kind of imagery available so that your potential clients could see that you're dating a certain kind of caliber of women that you're that you have have a number of women who are interested in you that kind of thing. Yeah, I found that to be really interesting, um, and that ties into something that you talk about in chapter two in terms of hierarchy and sexuality. So you see this not just in men's relation to women, but also in relation to other men. So I was hoping you could talk more about that hierarchical system you found. Absolutely. So as much as seduction is definitely about men wanting to change their relationships with women, that's a major reason why men become involved in this industry. Very often, the way in which they spoke about that said a great deal more about their relationships with other men. So many of the men who become involved in the industry, who sign up for courses or pay for products and services, they want to change their relationships with women, yes, but they often do so, they want to do so because of the way that those relationships signal to signal or what they say about their relationships with other men or how they're implicated. So I had a number of participants who would talk about wanting to, you know, have more dates or, or go out with more women and this kind of thing, specifically so that they would be able to talk about it with their friendship groups, so that they'd be able to share sexual stories, which a great deal of research in sociology has demonstrated is a kind of a, a core uh, formation of, of masculine bonding. And so there was this tendency that even as they wanted to change their relationships with women, it was very often um, in order to do something with their relationships with men. So maybe to overcome a sense of exclusion or marginalization within a friendship group, or in some cases to actually counteract more explicit forms of of bullying and harassment from other men. Um, So I had one participant, for example, who, even though he was in his mid twenties, he immediately in the interview began talking about having been a teenager and having been teased by other men 
of boys really for not having sexual experience. And so this for him was a, a big motivating factor. It was the very first thing he began talking about in, in our interview, even though it had happened several years previously. It's so interesting. Um, it, style also becomes important to the men. I found the quote, you know, that if you dress average, you get average girls uh, to be quite interesting. So I was hoping you could talk more about how style becomes important in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fashion and grooming is often a key point, a key kind of aspect of seduction training, of the kind of um, process of transforming oneself. And there is this idea of upgrading yourself in order to upgrade your sex life, in order to upgrade your love life. So there's a lot of talk in the industry about how women will very often put a great deal of effort into themselves, their appearance, their clothing. And so if men want to be with those kinds of women who are seen as the kind of... um, ideal feminine subjects, then men need to make a similar kind of investment. So there's often quite direct parallels made between women's engagement with uh, beauty and and fitness and cosmetics and things like this, and and men's need to invest in themselves, both at the level of kind of conversation skills and and flirting and and social dynamics, but also at the level of style. Um, And sometimes it was the case that men would say, you know, you don't actually have to have a great deal of money. You don't actually have to have a Rolex watch. You don't actually have to have a Dolce & Gabbana suit. But if you can dress in a certain way, you can almost affect the the appearance of wealth and the appearance of power and status. And that in and of itself will lend you greater authority with women, will lend you greater control with women. And if you're with attractive women, then you'll have greater access to high-end clubs. You'll have greater access to more elite venues. And so there's this kind of self this, this kind of reinforcing mechanism that's assumed to be in place, where if you kind of upgrade your your style and the way that you look, whether or not you actually spend a great deal of money on it, but if you if you if you kind of make an effort with your your appearance, that will give you access to a different caliber of partner, of sexual partner, and that in and of itself will give you access to more elite spaces in society. Yeah, so so then you sort of talk about masculinizing spaces. Um, mm-hmm. And here, what was interesting to me is I've seen a few episodes of The Pickup Artist on VH1, and I always yeah. thought, oh, that's just what they do on the TV show. That's, you know, that's just for TV. But you find that that's actually what happens. So not only do they receive training, but they go what you call in the field or or they're exposed to these real situations. So I was hoping you could talk about that. Yes. So virtually all training events encompass some kind of in-field training. So that means actually trainers taking their students or their clients out to the streets, to bars, cafes, restaurants, museums, university campuses, pretty much any, any public or social space. And the idea is that in order to really command these techniques, you need to, you need to do them. So there's a great deal of uh, emphasis placed on experiential learning, uh, hands-on learning. And so men would be, as part of their training, you know, they might kind of spend a couple of hours in a kind of conventional classroom setup where they're learning about social dynamics or learning about female psychology and so on. But then a great deal of emphasis is placed on, on actually going out in the field and, and speaking to women. And trainers, as they're doing this, are um, essentially kind of choreographing men's interactions with women. So they'll, they'll suggest to whip their, their students which women to approach, what to say, the kind of conversational pattern that they might use, um, this kind of thing. 
And in terms of the, the idea of, of masculinizing spaces, many men I spoke to said that talking to men, talking to other men about you know, the difficulties or anxieties they might have meeting women or approaching women wasn't really permissible. This wasn't something that they could talk about in their day-to-day ordinary friendships. And yet the seduction industry opens up a space in which men can have these conversations. They can talk about the so-called mechanics of, of meeting women. And many men felt that that was really, really, really useful to them, really uh, almost empowering in a sense. Um, and so this, there's this space that opens up whereby because it's always already assumed that men who are taking these kinds of courses are not skilled with women, then you don't have to admit to it. You know, you, you kind of bypass that, that admission of, of a kind of uh, gendered failure. Um, and in, in, at the same time, you become part of this homosocial collective, this grouping of men who are together learning how to be more skilled with women. And so many of the men I spoke to felt that attending these events actually uh, reinforced their sense of, of masculinities, which is actually antithetical to how it's often perceived. People assume that uh, going to a seduction training event would be um, very embarrassing or, or difficult for men. And, and certainly many men I spoke to were very secretive about their engagement in the industry, but they, they found themselves often on a kind of a, a high by the point of leaving uh, a training program. They felt themselves uh, empowered and, and had a sense of their masculinity as having been re- reinforced through the experience of spending time with and among other men whose main uh, interest or focus for that period is to is to up their skills with women. Yeah, I was surprised by how structured everything is. And you talk about this when you talk about what's called the game day blueprint. So I was hoping you could tell us what that is and explain what you found. So this is a specific uh, method within the seduction industry. So there are lots of different schools of thought and different ways of actually uh, kind of structuring interactions with women, different different kind of uh, techniques or, or methods that are that are sold and generated in the industry. And the day game blueprint comes from a British-based school, seduction school. Um, it's associated to the, the day game method. So the system of expertise in the industry is referred to as, as pickup or game, and you have various iterations of that. So day game simply means the kinds of techniques and strategies that you would use to approach women in the daytime. And the idea behind that is that there's less competition approaching women, say, at a library or in a cafe than there is approaching women in nightclubs, which are more kind of highly sexualized spaces. Hmm. And so there's an idea that it's essentially advantageous to approach women in the daytime, but also that you need to use a different kind of a skill base. You can't approach women in the same way, again, at, say, a library as you would in a nightclub. And so those who have formulated the day game blueprint outline a set of uh, techniques and skills specifically for use in the daytime. And it, uh, the, the actual, and I include an image of it in the book, and mm-hmm. it, it's set out almost like a kind of, uh, like, a, like a literal blueprint, like a kind of engineering pattern. And it's very formulaic. It has a very specific set, sets of steps that you need to go through, the particular interactional modality that you want to introduce at each phase of an interaction. So, you know, you want to set off the interaction on a particular footing. You want to, uh, you want it to develop in a certain way. You want to control the emotional tenor of the conversation that you're having and the interaction that you're having. And so the day game 
blueprint method, the day game blueprint is one among a number of different methods circulating. That's, um, but that illustrates the kind of, the, well, the quite formulaic approach to sex and intimacy that's elaborated within the seduction industry more generally. So this is relevant to the times. Um, consent and last, what's called last minute resistance comes up a lot in your book. So I was hoping you could tell us what that is. Yes. So last minute resistance is essentially the idea that there are, that prior to having sex, women will put up a kind of a token resistance that they will say no when really they mean kind of maybe or not yet, but, but really yes. Um, and that they do this, that women do this as a response to social conditioning, which essentially creates a double sexual standard. So this, of course, is something that we would speak a great deal about in the sociology of gender and, and, and feminist theory. And the seduction industry has essentially drawn on this idea of the double sexual standard and really kind of used it to, to men's advantage, used it in a way to recenter men's experiences and, and, and men's desires. So the concept of last minute resistant, as I've said, is this idea that there's a token resistance that women put up prior to having sex in order to essentially protect their reputation, to uh, rep- rep- protect the reputation to themselves, to the man that they're with, to a wider community grouping, um, but that the this resistance that women are putting up, the key word here really is, is token. There's an idea that it's it's not real. It's not seriously meant. It's something that, it's a kind of a, a ploy that women use as a way of kind of excusing their behavior to themselves or being able to say to themselves later, well, I wasn't planning to, but it just happened. Um, and so the seduction industry uses this idea of, of, la- of last-minute resistance to then prescribe a whole set of techniques that men can use in the context of a sexual interaction where LMR comes up. How do you, how do you actually deal with that? Um, and so as with most of the concepts within the seduction industry, there's both a, a, a knowledge base, there's a kind of a theory, a concept, and there's a practice. So that's why I talk in the book about seduction as a set of knowledge practices there's always a conceptual aspect and a practical aspect to, to all these ideas. Mm-hmm. And something else from that chapter that you find is that a lot of the seduction industry ties their claims to research. So I was hoping you could talk about that. This is a really interesting aspect of the seduction industry. So as a, as a whole, this, the system of expertise draws on lots of different ideas. So it takes in ideas from business management and Evolutionary psychology in particular would be one area where uh, there's a lot of feedback between, between the, the seduction industry and evolutionary psychology as, as an academic discipline. And so you have, well, as an academic d- discipline, but I should also say it's kind of, kind of popular science variety. So not just actual academic writing, but also the more kind of popular science writing that comes from that field. So you see a lot of interplay and, and interchange between, between these areas. And the thing that they really have in common is the idea that we have very uh, binary, rigid framings of gender. So we have, we have men and women, and both men and women have certain kinds of sexual strategies that they advance in the context of a heterosexual interaction, and that these are often contradictory and competing. And so where the seduction industry essentially could have parts ways in a sense with evolutionary psychology in that is that it, it is explicitly offering men a compendium of practical strategies and resources through which to manage their own sexual strategies. Um, 
So evolutionary psychologists would purport that what they're doing is, is really more about kind of providing the science and, and demonstrating uh, the kind of the facts of sexuality as they would see it. Whereas the seduction industry is taking this knowledge and, and trying to apply it. Now, what I think is interesting, however, as well, is that you have instances of evolutionary psychologists actually writing in favor of seduction. So there have been some, a few instances where evolutionary psychologists who are academics have written articles to say that the theories and the concepts and the practices that are advanced within the seduction industry are based in research, that they're based in good science. And so that's where you see a, a more questionable interplay between these two areas coming up. So then in the final chapter, um, I, I want to assign this chapter actually like in any sociology of gender class. I just really loved chapter four. You talk about sexual politics, and I want to read an excerpt from your book. You say, seduction functions as a way for men both to gain greater control in the intimate realm and to address perceived imbalances in the gender order. Can you explain that? Yes. So the seduction industry when men come to this sphere, they are looking to change their relationships with women. This is definitely an individual undertaking. There's something specific, typically, that they, that they want to realize or achieve through their involvement in the industry. But this is typically also born of a sense that something is not right with the gender order more generally. Something has gone awry in relationships between men and women. And so seduction is never simply an individual undertaking. It's always also about trying to bring into being a certain vision of the world. So I talk about it in the book as being both a self-making project and a world-making project. And what typically underlined this sense that something has gone awry in gender relations more generally was in relation to feminism. And many of the men I spoke to didn't necessarily use the word feminism straight on. They used many related terms such as equality or emancipation or political correctness. And this is what they would come back to time and time again when they were explaining why the industry exists and why it appeals to so many men. So one of the trainers I spoke to put it quite simply when I asked him, why do you think the industry has come about at this particular moment? And he just told me that there's, a, there's clearly a problem because if there wasn't a problem in society at large, then the industry wouldn't exist. So the industry really, those who participate in it, but also it's more uh, kind of official narrative, poses the idea that, that something has gone wrong in, in gender relations and implicitly places the blame for, for this imbalance, this imbalance between men and women at the door of feminism. Yeah, because they also, some worries about the feminization of men, but also this idea of gender fatigue came up. So I was hoping you talk yes. more. Yeah. So there are a number of different strands to the way in which this imbalance in the gender order is articulated. So um, I talk in the book about evolutionary narratives. Um, I also talk about the idea of, of masculinity lost. So these processes of emasculinization, according to many of the men I spoke to. Um, and the idea with this um, emasculation, men had this sense that men are no longer allowed to be masculine in a conventional or traditional sense, in the conventional or traditional sense of the word. This is something that's been uh, disbarred or prohibited because it's no longer acceptable. And so men, again, here, we're, we're talking about the idea that, that feminism has, is, has stopped allowing men to be men. So one participant I spoke to put it quite simply that, you know, 
you have to be careful what you wish for. And he's, he's talking about women here saying women have to be careful what they wish for because women said that they wanted equality, but what they've essentially done is, is they've emasculated men. So we don't have the kind of role models that we used to have. And he, he gave the example of footballers no longer being as kind of hard, hard and, and rough as they, as they would have at one time been. So there's this idea circulating within the industry, but also much more generally in society and in culture that, that the male role has been has been circumscribed, has been disallowed in, in various ways. So we've seen this taking place for a very long time in ideas of, of masculinity in crisis. That's something that that's a discourse, that's a narrative that has circulated culturally for quite a long time. So some scholars would put that to say that this has been circulating at, in, at some level for the past 40 years, but some others would would actually draw the bar much, much further away and say this has been going on for for much longer period. Great, thank you. So then in your conclusion chapter, you give us some takeaways about what you found about your study particularly, but also about the seduction industry. So I was hoping you could give us your big takeaways. Big takeaways. I think (laughs) one thing I would say is that there, again, in keeping with this idea of the seduction industry as a subculture, which is kind of where we started out in our conversation, I really think that the, the problem in framing, framing that, well, one, it's an empirical issue. I don't think that the language of some subculture actually corresponds to the empirical reality of how this industry functions and the kind of communicative reach that it has, which is vast. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one issue. And in relation to that, I think that the framing of subculture also perpetuates this idea that the, the problem is, is just this industry. The problem are specific individuals within the industry who essentially maybe provide a kind of program of sexual interaction which centers men's experiences and desires and really relegates women's experiences and perspectives as as secondary. Now, the problem with framing it in this way is that it fails to take account of the fact that the seduction industry has emerged in a wider social and cultural context. Mm -hmm. And actually that a lot of the modes of relationality that are that are elaborated in this setting correspond to ways of interacting between women and men that we see taking place much more generally. So I also want to talk about your postscript as a researcher myself. Um, I often find that in ethnographies, the postscripts could be standalone books of their own. Um, I just think that the listeners are really sort of interested in methods and, and ethnography, ethnography specifically. Um, but I thought it was interesting because you start off the postscript by saying there's definitely questions that people repeatedly ask you. So I don't want to ask you those questions particularly, but I do <laughs> want to ask you um, how, as a researcher, you experienced your own study. Yes. I mean, this this is something that, as you've said in the postscript, I kind of start off with the fact that the, the, the kind of questions that I get off, asked about quite often in relation to this industry is, and the research I've done within it is, you know, what was it like doing this as a woman and, and what have my experiences been? Um, I, I think one of the benefits of being able to write a book like this and um, have a, a dedicated postscript. So the postscript, you know, might sound like it's something quite short, but it's actually a solid chapter in and of itself. And the reason I felt I needed that much space was because this was a project. I mean, the field work took place uh, in over the course of a year, just over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also been engaging with the seduction industry in some way, studying it in some way for coming on a decade. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, in that time, you have a whole wide range of sets of relationships and encounters and experiences. 
And so I wanted to be able to explore those and discuss those at length as a way of thinking seriously about the role of the, the, the researcher in, in ethnography as, as the, essentially the, the tool of research. You are the, the medium through which the research is conducted. And so, of course, your experience and, and your subjectivity is important in that regard. Mm-hmm. One thing that I would say as I was preparing the postscript and as even before I was, I was writing it when I was actually doing the research and preparing for the research and I was reading a great deal of the literature on uh, cross-gender research. And, and that's kind of a clunky frame that's within a very binary gender, gender logic. But uh, reading a lot of the research and literature on women doing research in settings that are, are dominated by men. And I think really what I'm, I'm struck by is that the experiences I had were not so different from the experiences that many other women researchers report when they're doing research in contexts that are dominated by men. So there was an idea when I was talking to many uh, people about this research and when I presented at, at conferences and things that my, res- my research experience would be very particular, very specific, because I was doing research in a setting that offers men mastery with women. And so, of course, I would be extremely conspicuous in this setting um, because I would very often be the only woman present uh, at, at events, but also because I was the kind of the target or, or the object about which they were speaking, about which they were learning. And yet I would say, and, and so there, there, there are definitely particularities to the research because of that, but I would say that on the whole, the experiences that I had actually map onto what we see in, in a lot of the literature on women researching male-dominated settings more generally. And I think, I think that's a really interesting and important point to take away from it. So today we've been talking to Rachel O'Neill about her new book, Seduction, Men, Masculinity, and Mediated Intimacy. Thanks for joining us today, Rachel. Thanks for having me. 